Hi, this is Templar Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else we might find interesting. And your hosts are Kim Raj and Cliff Break. Today we have uh, Thomas Perazzoni. Um, hey. As of hi, Thomas, how are you doing? Good, thank you. We are really excited to talk uh, to you today. And uh, Thomas, as you know, is a longtime build build root contributor and maintainer, and uh, he works for Bootlin. Um, which is a well-known company in open source, especially in Linux space, and he's CTO um, for Bootlin. So today we'll uh, know more about Thomas and uh, also learn from his experiences. So I think, Cliff, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, uh, what's your take on, like, you know, how uh, the open source started and, you know, what Thomas brings to table? I think I'm really excited today. Yes, certainly. Cool. So... So Thomas, I think you know um, it will be good to kind of if you uh, discuss a little bit about your background or what you uh, basically what the path that brought you here. Uh, you started working on you know embedded Linux or in software, and uh, what was that? You know, so it will be good to recount on that. Yeah. So I think it's a, a, a fun and interesting story. Maybe a bit long, but it's kind of interesting, especially if you. Uh, compare it to how um, young people today have access to technology. So I like to to get back a little bit to that. So back in the, I'm born in '83. Uh, mm-hmm. So right now I'm 37. Just to give some some ideas. So I was basically around like 10 years old uh, in the early '90s, and back then, um, uh, due to some activities my dad had, he was not at all working uh, on computer science or anything like that. Um, but he, he got access to a computer, which everything starts there. And, and that was a 286, Intel 286 machine that we got at home, a laptop. Well, calling it a laptop, you could do that back in the days. Nowadays, you wouldn't call that a laptop anymore. Uh, but anyway, we had that thing. And so it was like early 90s, 92, 93, 94, something like that. That was like nine, 10 years old. No internet access, no web, obviously. And so you, we had this machine, it had DOS and some old, oldish version of Windows. So you explore it, you play games, there are just like three games. You look at things, you explore the system a bit, you tinker with it, but you're pretty limited. Uh, you read the documentation that comes with it, but yeah, pretty quickly you feel a bit limited. And by exploring all the comments that were on the system, I found one called QBasic. And that kind of caught my eye, but no internet, no, no nothing. So I went and I remember my parents brought me to the, to the bookstore of the village where I lived. And I asked the, the man uh, taking care of the bookstore. And okay, do you have books about that thing? So we looked up on, on this thing we had in, in France called the Minitel. It was the, the thing we had uh, before internet. You could connect to online services through some like text mode thing. So he searched some books for me and, and, and actually ordered one. So I got a book about BASIC, but nobody around me uh, knew anything about programming, right? I was like really on my own with that book, my BASIC interpreter on, on, on this machine and really discovering things. And there were also magazines in France. There was a science magazine with lots of articles about science in general. And every month they would publish a listing in BASIC of a program that you had to type yourself again you would of course make tons of mistakes um, by copying again the, the program, which were really interesting. And then it would like draw stupid things on your screen. And that's how I got into this programming really on my own. I think that's really something that is different compared to today 
where everybody has like tons of videos on YouTube, as much documents as they want. I was really like on my own um, doing all this research, experimentation, tinkering. And the fact that I was alone kind of forces into like digging by yourself and then puts into like your way of tracking bugs, investigating things, this methodology that's perhaps uh, some of the younger generation have more difficult to, to grasp. Um, but after a, a few years, not much, um, I got the chance to, to, to finally meet someone working in the computer science industry. And he told me, basic, no, 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 give up, give up on that. Yeah. Here is the Koenigan and Ritchie book for you, and you're going to learn C. Back then, I was in, um, how would you call that? Is it secondary school or, or junior high school or middle yeah, school? Yeah, high school. Not, sure. yeah. high, not, not yet high school. Because high school, school. Is like when you're like 15, 15 plus or something like that was, was before that. So I had this, yeah. this book um, that allowed to, 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 to learn C, the Koenigan and Ritchie, in maybe a little bit the hardware. And it was also at this time that I had started to get access to internet, which really changed things completely for me. Uh, because you had access to newsgroup. So I, mm. I read the, the um, newsgroup about the C language. And that's where I met a, another like, young guy like my age, really same, same grade from a completely different place in France. And we started discussing. And I think w one thing we were lacking is like a goal, a purpose. Like, okay, you learn programming, but to do what? And indeed, mm. that, yeah, many people, well, they want to program a game or something like that. But I'm not sure how we came up with that. But we said, okay, we're going to write an operating system. And I was like 14 or something, or 15 or something like that. It was completely stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, uh, I didn't even know what malloc was for or what, <laughs> you know, that kind of things. So it was totally crazy. But the, I'm not sure exactly why and how, but we really did it. And it's, it's still online today. There is a website. You can, you can bruise it. There's the, the, the code is available on, on, on CBS. Nice. CBS, yeah. <laughs> and, and so we really, uh, we learned, um, we bought like the Tannenbaum book, mm. uh, read it like 10 times. Um, and we had no computer science education. I was still in high school at the time. And so we learned assembly, started writing, you know, these small assembly steps to boot your x86 uh, machine. And then we learned how to, to, to uh, write the early steps of C and how to learn the MMU and all the intro tables and all that kind of things um, mm. as we go. And thanks to the news groups, I got connected really early on to um, engineers or even people uh, with more experience. And way before I started university, I was taught by those folks how to write C, how to debug code, how an operating system is working. Um, so at the time, I was still running Windows. I was doing all my development from Windows. I had heard about this Linux thing. I had bought maybe, I don't know, a Slackware distribution, tried it, but it was still um, a bit difficult there. But I had already started writing this small operating system. So pretty early on, uh, my kind of pass towards low-level stuff and, and not embedded mm. systems, but like system-level stuff was, was already written. And pretty much everything that, that followed, followed that pass. Um, I continued working on that operating system called uh, KOS for Kid Operating System because we were kids. Um, <laughs> and, it's, it, and as I said, it's still online for, for a couple of years. Mm. Um, and what I also did um, when I entered university, 
with one of the guys uh, who contributed to to this uh, to this project and has been a, a key key person for me who taught me a lot of things way before I had access to computer science education. We restarted the project, um, redid a slightly different operating system, but this time with a strong educational goal. And what we did is that for every step of writing the operating system, we were writing a very lengthy article that was published in, in the um, Linux magazine in France. So I think we published like 12 or 13 or 14 articles, each of like 10, 15 pages long, so pretty much almost a book in the mm -hmm. end, really describing like, okay, here we're booting, now we're setting up the MMU, what it means, how do you do that, what is virtual memory and all these things with lots of diagrams and so on. And that's what I wrote throughout my university, um, university time. Mm -hmm. So of course, university for me, uh, the computer science level was not extremely exciting. Um, of course, there were more topics that I, I hadn't touched a lot, but for lots of like C programming and system stuff, it was all pretty much uh, relatively yeah. well understood, I would say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really, I think this, this path is, 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 I find it interesting when you compare to, to nowadays access to technology is really the fact that it was alone facing this machine that I wanted to explore what it could do. And the fact of being limited with just a book in this machine and, and just struggling, struggling, trying, testing, experimenting, tinkering, mm. really got me to, to dive deeper and deeper into all these different um, topics. So I don't know how many hours I spent into that. I remember my dad going into the, um, uh, into the basement, turning off the, the electricity <laughs> of the house to bring me uh, to dinner and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, so funny times. Um, so anyway, I was, I was in university and um, the university I was in France, we had uh, two internships. In my first internship, I worked on an embedded operating system was closed source at the time, um, but still it was a really great experience. And also through that, uh, those two projects, uh, the, the persons that I met were really strong uh, open source free software people. So my, my cousin um, that I ended up, in fact, meeting through that project, I had barely a relationship with him um, uh, before that. But thanks to that project, I kind of met again a person from my family who was um, a lot into uh, computer science. Um, and he ended up working at Docker uh, later on. So he's <clears> still <throat> very much in the field. Um, he told me, yeah, you need to use Linux and I'm going to show you how you to use Linux. So he taught me like CBS and the shell and all these, these kind of things. And, and so this also not only taught me C and, and system level programming, but introduced me to um, the open source world, both from a technical level, but also more from an you know, ethical level where um, this concept of sharing, which, mm. um, as I said, this, this series of articles that we, we published was very much about sharing knowledge. Uh, so that's something I got uh, pretty early on as well. And mm -hmm. so for my um, uh, final internship, um, I worked on Linux. That was my um, first real professional experience with, with Linux. Of course, I worked on it at university and, and looked at the source code uh, a lot. But my final internship was about porting Linux to a, a MIPS platform. So I really entered uh, the kernel development for, for real at this time. And it is also the time where I did my first contribution to BuildFoot, which is another uh, key thing in, my, uh, uh, in the rest of, of what I did um, well, as a hobby and at work. So really, yeah, these different yes. elements combined um, kind of led me to doing 
uh, open nice. source and build roots. And so when I was at university, I was also a very strong um, free software advocate, you know, organizing install parties and talks yeah. and workshops and teaching people about using Linux. And, and I remember it was like uh, my university times were from 2000 to 2005. And back then, when you were doing Linux, you were a little bit the, the crazy penguin guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was still like that. And I very much remember people like making fun of those like Linux geeks, uh, yeah. this thing that is free and that will never be useful in business and, and yeah. stuff like that. Sure. And yeah. meeting them uh, years later at Linux conferences, <laughs> Linux trade shows and stuff like that, uh, uh, like advertising products uh, uh, based <laughs> on Linux. And so it was a very, um, yeah, very interesting, interesting times. times. Yeah, interesting times. Yeah, so I think that's a very uh, interesting story, really fantastic. And all the steps kind of like you learned through, I find it very interesting that that was your, um, you know, gaining the experience, you know, like filling yourself up with a lot of knowledge. And and I think uh, that's very important for anyone, right? That even modern times, you have all the devices, but in order for someone to fit into a particular area, they have to start learning. And they have to kind of have that knowledge, even though it is readily available, but grasping that is still on you or, you know, on the, on the person. So very uh, uh, informative to know that, uh, you know, that process is actually what is really what is behind it. So mm-hmm. uh, I think you really need a, a purpose, like something you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And these days, even myself, I find it more difficult, uh, a well-defined purpose that I stick to and mm. um, perhaps because, and I in, in part blame it to, to the, uh, the, the luxury of, of information we have access to, right? We have so many, so much information available, so many goals that we can try to achieve that in the end we are, at least this is something I feel personally, we are less focused mm. and it's a bit more difficult to really like, this is what I want to achieve and, and, and dig and dive and, and spend the time uh, doing things. We're more like jumping there and there, doing a bit of this, doing a bit of that. It's, yeah. I find it more difficult to, to stay focused in these times of like uh, mm. mass of information. Yeah, information overload. Yeah. So, so why is open source important to you? I know that you touched that, I, you know, that you were passionate from beginning about sharing. Um, but I think open source means a lot more than that nowadays. You know, you know, like people have companies based above open source, right? And of course, like open source is not only uh, limited to software anymore, right? It's getting into hardware. It's getting into like legal processes, government. So it has become more like a, a way of doing things, right? So, but I see, I hear you say that, you know, it was very important to you from the very beginning. And so what, what does it, uh, mean to you and how important it is to you? So I had, I had different periods in, in my life in terms of open source involvement, right? I was initially, as I said, was I came from a, a really technical background and got like um, acquainted with this idea of knowledge sharing by meeting those people who were teaching me things. And, and so I really early on wanted to also like share, share things again. And so it became pretty natural when I discovered open source uh, Linux, again, I discovered it by as a technical thing before, uh, uh, being more uh, a social, political object, uh, if we can, we can call it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely at my university time, I met more people who, who also uh, 
uh, discovered it in the same way as a technical thing. And then uh, usually I think when you're in university or, or late years of high school, that's where you're like, um, uh, political opinions or your reflection about you know the society and politics maybe it's not so advanced but it's it's the moment where you start asking questions about how the world is working and and, mm. and politics and and in, in all in all sense of it uh, both uh, like elections and, and uh, yeah. politicians and so on but also like true politics how, how society is, is working is organized and and so yeah my interest for uh, free software as a technical thing naturally expanded as an interest uh, um, mm. free software as a as a political thing so at university we did a lot of as i said free software advocacy um, not just on on the technical uh, aspects but also a lot on on the ethical aspect like uh, information sharing knowledge sharing mm. um, uh, transparency well all we were um, it was really the time of you know this battle between free software and Microsoft, and which today is a little bit like, you know, <laughs> enough uh, interesting if you look uh, look back. But, but yeah. back in the days, it was still this like very strong um, opposition between between proprietary software, Microsoft, and, and and all, and free software, which is still like something really at its early stage, at least in the in the business sense of it. Um, and so that's that's how it, it grew and really. Um, I met a lot of people who, who liked um, free software um, as a political thing, so it, it helped me uh, think about that. And so we, yeah, as I said, organized install parties internally mm -hmm. at the university, but also locally around the university, um, mm -hmm. trying to, to spread the word to, to non-technical people. Uh, and even when I moved here uh, to Toulouse, southwest of France, I set up the um, local uh, Linux user group organized uh, installed parties, conferences, and trying again to like um, touch a lot of uh, non-technical people and, and it, it, it worked. So I had this pretty long period of time where I was mainly focused on, on advocacy. On, at work, I was doing technical stuff, but really my spare time was more oriented toward um, advocacy. Mm -hmm. And gradually, I, I turned uh, back to more technical things. Uh, so nowadays, I'm no longer really involved in advocacy. Um, I was, uh, to share how much I was involved in advocacy, I was a, uh, in the boards um, of the, uh, the main organization in France for uh, free software advocacy. It's called APRIL. It's mm -hmm. pretty much the FSF, but in France, mm -hmm. um, if you want. So they, this organization had that connection with the FSF and really people who, who fight for um, a free software and... Uh, software freedom, open formats, uh, mm -hmm. fight against you know, software patents and stuff like that. So I was part of that organization as a, as a board member. Uh, so I was really deeply involved. Um, I think pretty much like in everything I do, I very often go pretty, pretty deep. the deep end. And, yeah, it was <laughs> until the end. And at, yeah, at some point I felt, okay, I did, I did what I could. And, and my, my interest kind of moved back to more of the contribution aspect. And this, it's the other thing that really drives me a lot in the open source. It's this rewarding feeling that contribution gives you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's completely independent from the political aspect, I find. Yeah. It's really this thing that you do something and you get, you get some feedback from people showing that it is useful. And I, I mm -hmm. get this feeling a lot due to my contribution to BuildRoots. It's a project I've, been, mm -hmm. I've worked on since 2008. So I've, been, I've seen that project change and grow and I participate to that change and, and growth. And it's, of course, very rewarding so, to, to see it 
gaining in popularity, gaining in number of users, gaining in contributions, and it's, it keeps you uh, moving. That's very interesting. Thomas, could you describe your involvement in the BuildRoot project? We'd, we'd like to learn a little more about what you do there and, and just how that project works. Okay, so um, maybe just a brief uh, recap on what, what BuildRoot is for, for, the, for the people who are going to listen to us. It's a tool that uh, automates the process of building a Linux system from source. So it, it compiles all the components um, of the software components that will make up a complete Linux system. It can be as simple as just a Linux kernel, a C library, and BuzzyBox, but you can also add up tons of, of libraries for graphics, for networking, for crypto, for lots of different things, multimedia stuff, and, and so on. And it is really widely used to build embedded Linux system because it's simple, you can optimize and customize things as you see fit. So that's like in, in a few words what, what BuildRoot is. And I think for open source projects, the, the journey is almost always a little bit the same, right? You start as a user, mm -hmm. you, you need something, you discover a project, you start using it, um, which is what I did back in, in my final internship. I needed to, something to build my MIPS system in a tool chain. So yeah, BuildRoot was one of the things that was there, it was not yeah, really very popular back then, but it was one of the few tools that existed. So I tried it, it of course didn't work completely for me. So I started tinkering and then trying to debug things. And, and I ended up like becoming a, a small contributor. That's usually how things go, right? You're a user, but facing some limitations or bugs, you investigate them. And, and if you have this open source mindset, uh, you don't want to keep those changes for you. You want to, to share them with others. Um, not just, I think there's this, People think of, of it like I'm, I'm giving to others, but you're also receiving back, right? Mm. Because you're receiving back the review that will help you like understand better how things are working. Uh, so it helps increase mm. your own knowledge. Um, so I started contributing that. I think that's the, the second step of being a, the journey in open source, right? You switch from being just a mere user to just a occasional contributor, just sending a few things that you've tried that has improved things for you in a way or another. And back then, um, in addition to the fixes, I did something that um, um, a lot of people I think can do as users is I wrote the documentation for the project. So oh, it was kind nice. of my key thing that I, I wrote back then it was not complete, but it was at least like what I wish I had seen to get me started with, with mm -hmm. BuildRoot. So it's, it's a neat way I think to, to really jump into yeah. it. And, and then I had this, this parenthesis for a few years where I, I worked in a company doing Linux stuff, but that was closed source and that was no longer embedded. So I was doing kernel stuff, still system level, but no longer embedded, no longer really connected to open source, so not, not much work. And in 2008, I got hired by, um, by the Free Electrons founder. A company was called Free Electrons back, back then. I was the first employee. And, and because of what we do, uh, embedded Linux, I uh, moved again to BuildRoot and, and started contributing more and more, uh, again, because we were using it for, for our own trainings, for our experiments, finding issues, things to improve. And, and it's like, it's a never ending like snowball, right? You mm. find like a small thing, but by when you solve it, you realize, oh, we could improve this and that yeah. and that and that. And then when you solve those things, you discover more things around that you could solve one more and more. And then the snowball is so huge that your to-do list is, is like filling up much quicker than you can like, you can empty it. So there's this like yeah. really rewarding effect of 
doing things, seeing that people use it, um, give feedback that it is useful for them, that it fixes issues for them, um, feels, gives you more idea as well to, to extend that s the size of that snowball and then keeps you moving and moving and moving. So I did contribute to Beardroot gradually more and more over, over the years um, due to both professional input, but also a lot of that community input that, as I just explained, really drives you into like doing more and wanting to do more, wanting to fix up things more, wanting to uh, clean up things more, to refactorize the code and, and so on and so forth. And um, over time, uh, became one of the co-maintainer of the of the project, which I'm, I still am. Um, so that's kind of, of the, the journey I took. But again, it's it's as you can see, kind of the journey started in 2004. We are in, in 2020 now, so it's been like 16 years that I initially started uh, playing with uh, with Buildroot. So it's not something that happens overnight. Um, I sometimes see all those people asking, yeah, I want to learn kernel development, but they're only ready to spend like a week or two doing that. Yeah, it's not going to work, right? You, it's really a long-term thing that uh, allows you to get into um, a position where you can contribute significantly to a an open source project. So that's pretty much my journey. And today my work as a maintainer uh, or one of the co-maintainer, we are four, four maintainers in, in Buildwood. So we don't work like Linux where we uh, divide the project into subsystems. It's really like four maintainers that can all touch any part of the, of the system. So we have sufficient like trust and, and interaction and communication that we don't step on, on each other choose. Um, we know who is going to work on something or yeah, that doesn't, um, so far it's been working really, really well. So as a maintainer, I review patches submitted by contributors and give feedback, uh, merge it. And I work mainly on tooling for the maintenance of the project. That's kind of my, my key thing in the past few years, things like uh, automated testing, notification to developers when something is broken, all this tooling that helps uh, maintaining a project like uh, like Buildroot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. What would you say some of the core values of of the Buildroot project are? Like things you hold really important as a project. So I think the one of the core value is simplicity. Um, one of the competitors, I think it was in, in in our outline for this discussion, is is Open Embedded and Yocto, which which falls on a different part of the scale from a complexity point of view. So one of the focus is simplicity. Another focus is, is reuse of existing technologies that are familiar to uh, embedded developers. So kconfig for the configuration system, which every uh, Linux kernel uh, user, but people who have built the kernel will have already uh, used. And uh, GNU Make, which is very popular in the, in the open source world. So these are really the two foundational technologies that, that we use. And this is also important to simply avoid learning things that are too specific to, to, to the project. Um, maybe today we are popular enough that people would accept learning something special. But uh, yeah, when, we, when you get started as a project, if there's too many things people have to learn to uh, use your, your product project, then it's a real barrier to, to jumping into the project. Um, so the decision of, of sticking with those well-known technologies is, I think, important. Um, another thing that is important is this um, a single tree uh, that we have very much like the Linux kernel. We have a single tree of source code. So it causes kind of a bottleneck in the sense that, that all the code has to flow through the same team of people. 
Um, but the big benefit is that the consistency and the quality is, is like very, um, I'm not going to say good, but at least it's pretty well the same across the, the, the code base, the, the logic, the solutions to solve a particular problem. Um, even in Linux, it has been at times an issue where in one area of the kernel, some issue is solved like this. In another part of the kernel, the exact same problem is solved a completely different way just because yeah, people don't realize it's the same problem. Here, the project remains sufficiently small and all the code being funneled through a small team of people, we, I think, uh, maintain a, a fairly good consistency of, on how we approach uh, things. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing I really, yeah, one thing I really like about BuildRoot is it's like, you know, it's a simple checkout and then the number of commands you need to get going is very few. So I think that is definitely a very uh, positive experience for somebody, you know, who is new, maybe coming in, you know, from a different environment. And so that part actually is, is uh, at least I find that very useful. So moving this, like, you know, there are now different um, ecosystems on different, like, you know, uh, infrastructures or frameworks, you can call them, that's, uh, that are out there, you know, open to build uh, systems. You know, there is uh, Linux from scratch, you know, there is uh, Yocto open embedded, then we have BuildRoot, and there are a few others, you know, that are around, like NixOS, you name it, right? So um, what are some of the trade-offs you would think that users have to be aware of, like, you know, when they are building their embedded systems? And, you know, where does, say, uh, people have to go for help or find out saying? Yeah, so it's it's... Yeah, a really interesting question, but obviously it depends on what you want to do, right? Depending on what you want to achieve, the answer is going to be uh, completely different. So just taking a few of the ones you named, like Linux from scratch, really interesting project. I, we, we talked about like education and, and, and digging into things. Linux from scratch is exactly um, the fit here, uh, but it's, it's more oriented towards uh, building from scratch a desktop-oriented system or a server-oriented system than really an embedded system. But really, if, if your aim is, I want to, to build a Linux system, well, the name says it all from scratch, from the beginning, and learning about every piece and doing it by end, then Linux from scratch is the way to go. If, however, what you want to build is an embedded product, um, doing it completely from scratch with no like automation around it, is probably going to be a strong limitation at some point. So I would say Linux from scratch from an educational point of view is, is really awesome. And I, I believe they have this variant where something uh, called CLFS for a cross-compiled Linux from scratch where they can teach you how to do the same but for a different CPU architecture. Uh, so that might make a little bit more sense for people uh, working in embedded. But really for doing a final product, yeah, we don't really suggest something like that. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you, have, you can use a binary distribution, like you can put Debian, you can put Ubuntu or Fedora on, on many of the, uh, um, the embedded systems. And recently at, at Bootlin, we've been um, playing a bit with um, a tool called Elba, uh, which is an automation tool to build Debian and Ubuntu um, images. So it's a little bit like a Deb Bootstrap, but allows you to also compile packages, really generate the complete image mm -hmm. um, in, in, in one tool. Uh, it's pretty neat, a tool from, uh, from Linutronics. So it's, it's nice. I mean, it's, it, you want an Ubuntu system, a Debian system on your target. It's really nice because it really fills the, the gap between uh, the fact that Ubuntu Debian by history are more like installation oriented. You, you 
run an installation wizard and for a bunch of questions and then you have a working system while in the embedded space we are more like firmware oriented usually we have an image where everything is is already there and we just put it on our uh, flash or or a storage device and we turn on the power and everything is ready which is a little bit a little bit different so elba kind of fill, fills that gap and allows to use debian ubuntu pretty nicely on embedded systems but still what you get is is a desktop distribution right so plenty of dependencies a relatively heavy system compared to what you could achieve with other solutions and that's the the, the middle is where things like a yocto project open embedded build root uh, and you say there's a bunch of others like OpenWRT and PTXT mm -hmm. and lots of people have written their own here, uh, which kind of provides the more or less the best of both worlds, of course, with some drawbacks, but it, in the sense, it gives the best of both worlds in the sense that you have pretty much the same flexibility as with Linux from scratch in this, because you're building everything from source so you can tweak the configuration of everything use whatever compiler version you want to use, apply patches to every piece of software in your system. So we've got like plenty of flexibility, but you don't have this, this massive hurdle of doing it manually. There's a tool that automates the process of compiling BuzzyBox and compiling OpenSSL and compiling this and compiling that, knowing about the, the compatibility issues, um, all the, the, the tricks about cross-compilation that, that are sometimes a bit difficult. Um, so it, it brings pretty much the same level of automation and simplicity as using a binary distribution, but while giving you the flexibility of building things from source. So that's mm. how I kind of summarize uh, where Yocto project, open embedded, build root, PT exist, all fit. And then when you dive deeper into, into this type of tools, then of course each has its own strengths and, and, and drawbacks. I think uh, as we started uh, touching, Buildroot is kind of on the simplicity side. And it's, it's been, um, you mentioned how you like Buildroot because it's just like one or two commons and, and you, can, you can build your system. That's absolutely true. But it's been challenging to keep that simplicity while meeting for the increasing um, requests from users to support more and more complex use cases. So it's mm -hmm. been a constant challenge in, 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 as, as Buildroot maintainers to keep that balance of uh, remaining simple at first sight while giving enough hooks and, and mechanisms for more advanced users to do the things that they need to do. And, mm. and still, even with that, we're not as powerful as open embedded can be in mm. many, many areas. So this is really where one of the differences in the simplicity and learning curve uh, will give you a very easy uh, start and, and, and smooth learning curve. Um, open embedded Yocto will give you a much steeper learning curve, but also the, the, the power of the tool is different. Um, Buildroot has a very simple mindset. You define a configuration for a system. You do one build. It builds everything from scratch, produces a firmware image. You put it on your device and that's it. If you want to do a slightly different system, you have to do another configuration, another complete build. Um, that is completely independent from the previous one, even if they are like 99% the same, still it's two different configuration, two different systems. Um, there's no caching of results between builds. Um, there's no concept of binary packages on the target. It's really just one firmware that you flash. You can't upgrade individual uh, libraries or applications on the target. 
so at the other end of the spectrum, obviously Open Embedded provides all of that, right? You, mm -hmm. um, you can, in a much more fine-grained way, describe the different images and machines that you are targeting. Uh, so if you have like two slightly different systems, but that share like 99% of the things, it is capable of building only once the, the common aspects, um, which, is, which is really neat. There's lots of build caching capabilities in, in Open Embedded. And it has support for a package management on the target, uh, which some people like, even though I'm not so sure it's, it's really the killer feature of, of Open Embedded. Uh, I believe the, the expression of the configuration, the concept of layers is much more uh, the interesting points of, of, of Open Embedded. Um, so yeah, it's two, two different approaches. And uh, Open Embeddedity fits a little bit in the middle between the two. It's yeah. quite a bit more complex than Buildwood, even though it, it's, uh, some people um, sometimes mistake it with Buildwood because it was forked from Buildwood like 15-ish uh, years ago, something like this. Um, so it still has a, a little bit the same look and feel. It uses cakeconfig, it uses make, but under the hoods, yeah, I mean, there's nothing common anymore between Buildwood and OpenWRT. Yeah. And yeah, complexity-wise, they have support for packages on the target. Um, but also their focus is, is a little bit different, right? Uh, build Roots and Open Embedded, they're completely agnostic build system. They're just, they build stuff and you have to define as a user the image that you want to compose with what in it, what you want in it, and do the, the integration, the polishing between, okay, there is this library that was dropped in my file system and this other library. If they were not meant to work together, then it's up to you to like write an application on top that will do something useful out of OpenWRT. They have this principle of out of the box delivering something that looks like a product, which um, in the case of OpenWRT is a Wi-Fi network router. Yeah. Uh, so it's much more uh, like a, a market-specific distribution. Right. Um, than, than what Buildroot or Open Embedded are, really. Um, right. So it's pretty different uh, what, what, they, what they do. Even if you can, like, you can tweak it to do something else than a Wi-Fi router or networking equipment, but still it's kind of their main, their main goal. And, and you can do a, an Open WRT build, get an image, you put it on your Wi-Fi router and you have a working Wi-Fi router. I think with Open Embedded or Buildroot, no way you can do that. You would get right. Linux image with WPA supplicant, OSTPD, and IP tables, and lots of tools, but no web interface, no, yeah, yeah. no polishing, no integration uh, around. So I think that's yeah. another pretty important difference between uh, some of the build systems. Yeah, yeah, I think you really put it in a very nice uh, table, so to speak, uh, to differentiate them. And I think it's, it's very um, helpful to learn these differences and know where you fit, you know, where, what you are looking for. And so I think it'll help people get started, you know, in, in a right fashion, what they're looking for. So, um, so would you, uh, so I'll have like a couple of questions on build route and then we'll move to others. So uh, on build route, you know, what is uh, like a, you know, a typical process to say, add a package or customize a package. Right. And then, or kernel, for example, or say I have my own application, right? Then um, what is kind of my high level steps? And so if you could kind of like talk to that uh, briefly, that would be very helpful. So I think really the um, two levels in, in terms of build root usage is you're merely a user. So the configuration is based on kconfig. So you make mini config and you select all the software elements that you want in your system. 
uh, you say I want Qt, I want OpenSSL and this and that, and you can say I want this kernel with this version and I want to apply those patches, use this device tree, you specify all of this in your configuration. Then you run make and Buildroot's gonna do yeah, the downloading and extracting, configuration, building in, and, and installation and generating a file system image for you. So that's really like the, I would say the first level, like things that already exist in Buildroots are fine for you. The next level where you, uh, that you ask is like, I want to add a new package. Like there is either an application that I've wrote or an open source application or library that is useful and that is not yet in the, in the set of packages known by Buildroot. And in that case, it's, it's relatively easy. We have a pretty extensive uh, reference documentation on how to do that. It's gonna be about mainly uh, on one side describing options to enable that package to at least one option to allow the, uh, uh, the kconfig system to know if the package is enabled or disabled in your particular uh, system. So that's the easy part. And then the more complex part is writing a small make file that teaches Buildroot on how to retrieve the source code for your package and how to build it. And here, the complexity uh, varies from like a trivial five line make file all the way up to several hundred lines of convoluted uh, make files, depending on how complex your uh, application or library is, how uh, well it cross compiles or not, how many dependencies it has and things like that. So the, the complexity can, can really vary greatly um, if it's a simple, library that uses the auto tools or CMake or Mason that cross compiles nicely, doesn't have too much dependency. Yeah, it's just gonna be uh, yeah, five, 10, 15 lines of make files and off you go. Um, of course, if you want to cross compile, I don't know, Python or Node.js or uh, yeah. Chromium or whatnot, <laughs> it's gonna be a completely different story. Right. But hopefully for lots of these complex stacks that are very popular, it's already supported in Buildroot, so you don't have to, 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 do, to do that work. Yeah. And, and then, so if you want to customize a package, well, you pretty much have to follow the same steps, except that the package already exists. So there's already a set of uh, config options and already a makefile. So you have to understand that makefile and uh, do the adjustments that you, that you need, uh, perhaps because you want to upgrade to a newer version or support a feature that, that so far was not supported and that you need in your, in your project. And again, I think the complexity can vary greatly between being trivial to being massively complicated, depending mm -hmm. on the case. And what's important, um, and I think that's the case for a lot of open source projects, but it's, it's true for Bitroot, is that there is a community. Um, there is a very active mailing list, a very active RSC channel. Um, a lot of core contributors are also active on Stack Overflow. Uh, so there's lots of ways of getting help. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty common for people to just drop what they've tried to do and say, okay, I've tried to do that, and, 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 but I'm facing this problem. And, and for people used to doing build routes uh, pretty much all day long, uh, not all the problems, but many problems are fairly common and, and repeat uh, among, among packages. So we can we give some help to a lot of these like new users, new contributors. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what are some of your um, thoughts on like growing the community, like, you know, keeping build route or otherwise any project in mind? Because it's always a challenge, right? You might know that growing a community, you know, it has a certain uh, aspects to it. 
attracting new users and new developers. So uh, some of the steps that you think or you have already implemented, maybe, you know, uh, if you kind of talk of one or two, that would be really helpful for the community. Yeah. So to give some numbers, our community, we ship a release every three months and every three months we have about 100 to 120 contributors. So it's, it's not huge like the Linux channel, but it's not like a project maintained with just two or three people, right? It, it's a project that, that receives uh, a, contrib a contribution from a decent contributor base. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I don't know if, you're really, if we're really the best at that, um, mm -hmm. but you need to obviously be welcoming to, to newcomers. So I, as a maintainer, I have a very different way of reviewing and responding to contributions depending on who is making the contribution. So I will have a much higher, a much higher requirements from a, a seasoned regular senior contributor uh, from whom I will expect like a lot of things to be, to be like good or perfect mm -hmm. uh, from, from the start. While for a newcomer, I will, pretty much like um, ignore all the mistakes and instead like teach about the mistakes. Yeah. Um, and, and we've seen uh, in many cases that uh, Beardroot is very often for many of our contributors, the first open source contribution they make. We see that by uh, their way of interacting and uh, their struggle with the tools and, 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 and things like that. Um, but yeah, I have, this is to me, the first thing that I do is adapt to the way I, I react to code being posted to who is posting it. Mm. Um, and, and that's, that I believe is really important on, on some, yeah, I'm sometimes having never harsh words, but pretty direct words on, on code that isn't great or insufficiently tested from, from like regular contributors. Well, code that is in fact much more awful coming from, from new contributors yeah. will receive a really warm welcome, like, hey, it's great, your first contribution, uh, mm. that's good, but there's a few things that you need to adjust. And then when in the explanation, it's not gonna be like just like the one, one or two words things that say fix it up, but more like what the why and, mm. and, and the reasons and give more background in the hope that those people will will stick around, which yeah. does work. I mean, it's, it's, uh, of course, there's a lot of drive-by contributions and you see one or two patches and then, and then the person goes away. But there's also a few of those people who like do one and then two and then five contributions and then 10 and then they become regular contributors. Right. So I think that's one, one uh, important thing that, that can be done. Of course, you need to do a bit of marketing well, marketing in, in, in the open source sense of the sense of it, of course, giving talks, um, is, is one way of like raising awareness about your project, what's, what's changing, um, who is using it, that, that kind of things yeah. we could probably do better. Um, I mean, I, I believe very few people know that, uh, Tesla and SpaceX are using build routes and Google is using build route that, that kind of big companies. We're mentioning it from time to time, but we're not, I think compared to, to what it means in terms of like uh, image, uh, we're not making a lot of fuss. Um, about it, we could perhaps do more, but yeah, doing a, some talks to raise awareness about your, your project. But then I think the main marketing is really the people using your, your project, right? If they find it good, then the word will spread, they will write blog posts, they will write uh, articles in magazines, they will do that kind yeah. of things. And that is how really, um, I think the root has, has grown. Uh, funnily enough, there's been a, uh, a discussion that, that reflects a discussion in the Canal community about contribution tooling. 
uh, in recent times in the Beirut community around uh, email-based contribution, which we are still using. Good old guys. <laughs> and, and there's a push from, from uh, I'm not sure if it's a younger generation or different uh, culture uh, to like GitLab, GitHub-based, uh, pull request, merge request, which is the exact same like debate that is animating the, the kernel community these days and probably a number of other like old-fashioned open source communities. So we had this debate like just like uh, this month and last month. I think it's still it's still pretty uh, still a pretty warm debate. Um, yeah. And it's yeah, interesting to see the, the the conflict between like those old timers that have their habits of and I'm 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 among them of course, right? These their habits of, of tools, of email based and these uh, you know common line tools and so on and these newer generation they want web based interfaces we only use webmails, so they, they get a bit disconnected from, the, I believe, the, uh, the power of, of real email clients. And then, yeah, there's this disconnect that, that is um, a bit going on in, in many open source communities. I mean, in, in the newer ones, it's, it's usually easier, right? They start right away from GitHub, so it's kind of uh, from day one, they're, they're using this model. But for yeah. other communities, uh, Beirut has been around since 2001. So back then, GitHub was not even a thing. Git was not even a thing. Um, so yeah, we have to go through that. Maybe I don't know. Maybe through that change, but it's it's much more difficult um, yeah. to do than than for these newer projects. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. And and you're right. Like a lot of communities are having similar debates. You know, like. Um, how should we make our contribution process uh, a, a little more modern, you know, or a little mm. more appealing to modern tools? And I've seen the same debate in uh, LLVM community, you know, in open embedded community, and also, you know, build roots. So that's uh, yeah. probably a healthy debate, I think, you know. In yeah, it is. I'm always a little bit, I always feel a little bit weird about that debate because people are saying it's too complex to send patches over email. Mm -hmm. But I like like for the kernel. I mean, what is more complex, write kernel code or send an email? I mean, I believe <laughs> kernel code is probably like a few orders of magnitude more difficult than than setting up hits yes. and email and and that sort of tooling, right? So, yeah. I, I'm so some people say uh, I think to send patches over email is a barrier uh, to entry into projects because it's too complex. But I find that argument a bit a bit odd, right? Because yeah. the complexity of even, even BuildRoot, it's, it's um, a lot simpler than, than doing kernel work mm -hmm. by far and large, but still it's much more complicated to, to dive into a code base than, yeah. than having to set up gits and emails. So it's, it's always been a, a funny argument. And I believe it's really more a, it's not really that those old timers are against welcoming new contributors. It's really a, a, a tool culture uh, yeah. difference, right? Yeah. Uh, being used to webmails and, and web-based tools and, and so on. Correct. Compared to these uh, yeah, older people who have been using like uh, email-based uh, clients uh, for, for decades and, and yeah. yeah, different way of, um, of tooling, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you've been, um, uh, you know, uh, doing a lot of uh, trainings as part of your uh, job. So, you know, um, and Cliff and I, you know, we look through um, several times through, you know, various trainings that you have posted, and they are very detailed and um, full of, like, a lot of good content. And, um, and so we have always um, wondered, like, you know, what goes behind them and 
how you go about doing those. And I know that you know you uh, you've been also involved in uh, Embedded Linux conference for a long, long time. And so, if you could talk about that, and you know, because it goes probably hand in hand in terms of trainings, and you know, uh, what are, what was your because I know that you did videos before Linux Foundation did videos. So, um, so if you talk about that a little bit from like uh, educating and training point of view, that would be uh, very good. Sure. So, um, a, a lot of the, um, the of that um, is 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 because of, of Free Electrons founder Michael Optenacker. Um, so, it is a guy from the the open source community. I, I had the chance to to meet him in like um, I don't know two thousand. Four, five, six, seven, around those years. Uh, back then, I was like at the end of my university, beginning of my um, professional career. And, and Michael started um, Free Electrons back then in 2004. So, it really the time he started that, that company. And on, on my side, I was already doing a lot of this knowledge sharing. I said writing those articles, but I also did things that I find completely crazy today. Uh, back when I was a student in university, I gave like uh, uh, day-long talks on how an operating system is working. Um, <laughs> so I, when I went to a, a free software conference in France, I would submit talks. So already back, I was, back then I was in university uh, giving talks uh, like half day long, day long. So it was almost like a course more than a talk. And that's how I ended up meeting Michael Obdenacker who, who saw that I was... Uh, that I, I knew some stuff uh, at the technical level, but I was also very interested in, in sharing it with others and explaining it with others. And I remember giving some of those uh, day-long uh, courses without any materials, like just a, a, a whiteboard and a pen, and that was all I had to, to talk about operating system for, for an entire day. Um, so we yeah, are doing trainings, sharing uh, technical things that I know has always been something I, I was really enjoying to do. And so when Michael asked me to, if I was interested in joining uh, Free Electrons, um, it, it was the, the first uh, employee he, he hired. I was really happy. It gave me the, the chance of uh, leaving a, a closed source company uh, to a company with a radically different mindset, right? So Michael's mindset is fully towards uh, open source and then contributing and then, and, and and I'm not going to say business is secondary because it was also meant to be a business where we can uh, I don't know, pay our our houses and, and food and stuff. But it's it's yeah, open source and contribution and knowledge sharing has always been a, a key driver. Um, so that's uh, one of the reasons why Michael has been sharing the um, training materials under a Creative Commons license since the very beginning. So it's been like more than 15 years now. Uh, we've never changed that. We do a training. It's all online, so no, it's on GitHub because GitHub is not exist. Um, so all the source code is on GitHub. Everybody can see it, can use it. We have competitors, we know, who, who use them. But yeah, we're fine with that. I mean, it just spreads the knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's been um, uh, like a, a very strong value at um, at for electrons no bootling, and and we've never uh, changed our own mind about it. Last I think last year we released a new course on Linux graphics, like all these graphics stack in Linux, like GRM, OpenGL and stuff. And from the very course we gave to the first customer, everything was online, Creative Commons. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we really believe in, in, in those, uh, these values. Of course, they also give a, an interesting uh, business advantage, right? Um, in terms of, of marketing, we don't do any marketing as a company. 
our training materials, the fact that a lot of people know about them and use them without ever like buying services from us is a very strong uh, way of, of spreading our name and brand and expertise in different uh, companies. And that has been pretty successful so far. And yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, still something we're doing, sharing these training materials openly. And so we maintain them um, on, a, I'm not going to say on a daily basis, uh, but Michael is still very active in, in doing the kind of this day-to-day -day maintenance, upgrading like the kernel that we're using, the U-boot we're using, all these like small improvements here and there that are really important to keep information accurate. And then from time to time, we do bigger uh, efforts of like really reworking completely a course or a part of a course or developing a completely new course. So there's sometimes these bigger chunks of work. But there's also this like day-to-day -day maintenance, very much like a code base, right? Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. you just add a few features here and there, uh, address a few bugs, and other times you do more major refactoring. So we pretty much handle it the, 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 same, the same way. Yeah, yeah. So that's like keeping it um, more pertaining and more uh, uh, up to date, um, and, and that requires uh, a bit of yeah. effort all the time. Yeah. And, and then it, I, I think the analogy with software is really relevant because whenever I teach one of our course, the fact of teaching it gives me idea uh, about how to improve it. So there's this mm -hmm. constant, um, you know, same snowball effects that I was yeah. referring to earlier, right? The, you get feedback from the people, you see how they react to how you're explaining something. You realize, oh, maybe I should add this other explanation or do the diagram differently because it would help this uh, or that um, concept to be more easily understood by, by the audience. And yeah. again, that's, that's this um, constant feedback that, uh, that drives how we try to improve the, the training materials. We could do better with more time, but yeah, at least we're already spending a good amount of time maintaining them. And, and so indeed, uh, ELC um, is, uh, so the Embedded Linux Conference is it's the, the go-to conference for, for, for people in our field, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, you have to be there. I think it's um, next to the open training materials, ELC has been for Free Electrons in Brooklyn, the second main driver for, for business, right? For meeting people, for getting the brand known, for showing the expertise and so on. And, and so I got hired in, um, in January 2008 by Michael, I attended my first ELC just a few months later in April 2008. It wasn't my first international conference. At my previous job, I had the, the chance of attending the Ottawa Linux Symposium, an excellent uh, conference uh, back, back in, in the days. Uh, so going international and, and attending those events was not new for me, but it was new for Embedded. And that was like amazing. I do remember those first, uh, first ELC was in, 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 it was spring one. So in, in the US, which was, uh, you know, again for a person relatively young in, in his career, a great, great opportunity. And all the talks were like, it's been like, all this information, all those things that I don't know, all those things that, that I need to learn, that I need to understand yeah. more is like, yeah, really a, a feeling that was so great. And, and since then, I haven't missed a single ELC or ELCE, I believe. So it's yeah. been like every, every six months, this tradition of going to ELC, ELCE. My perspective has, has changed a bit um, over the conference. Um, I, I believe for, yeah, there's been changing on my side, I guess, uh, an increase in expertise. So what 
at the time where everything sounded new and exciting and amazing now sounds a little bit like yeah it's been the same thing like as usual yeah. i already know about this topic so um, i just learned a few more things but there's always new things new fields new new topics but in some areas it's a little bit like always always the same yeah so it was more like you were in the taking mode and now you're in the giving mode right so yeah yeah there's probably uh of that i know that the part that i enjoyed the most at elc is more like meeting the people uh, yes. reconnecting with with the with the folks that i know more like um a big family but it's not so big um mm. this family of embedded linux um developers around the world who get to to meet every every six months and 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 no longer because of the uh health situation right now yeah. uh, and it's and it's a pity and and i guess also another thing that perhaps changed a bit the conference is is it really changed from this like not really obvious but technical people driven conference to a more like corporate mm -hmm. um a little bit more marketing oriented conference it's still very technical that's that's it this 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 part is okay but still the the, the look and feel is is uh, it's very different. I remember about my first ELC. I have some very good memories of it. Uh, it uh, so it took place in in Mountain View in in California. I think it was in in the Computer History Museum in in Mountain View, so just a, a few few blocks away from Google. And the um, the uh, social event was a, a laser game, a laser <laughs> quest. So I remember it was my first ELC, and I could shoot Tim Bird in the laser game it was <laughs> really awesome so nowadays when you when you go to the social event it's like a cocktail you know with sponsors being thanked and all yeah. back then you would just kick the ass of the other embedded linux developers yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed yeah. so i think um, you know we have a few questions uh, cliff for um, thomas and I think uh, one thing that we always find interesting is that you have like this small knit team of very handful of high, you know, the developers, which basically, you know, you are very visible in the community. And, you know, uh, and if you look at the, you know, top 10 contributors or, you know, top 20 contributors of Linux kernel, then uh, your name appears there, you know, as a, uh, as a company as well. So, we always were curious, like, you know, for people who have like small companies or, you know, who are maybe individual contributors and they are looking and listening to this, uh, what uh, does it take to build this, you know, a highly efficient small team? Um, that's a very interesting question. I did cover that quite a bit in, in the keynote in ELCE Dublin. I don't know if you remember that one. It was the most yes. intimidating experience of my life, right? I was <laughs> speaking, I think, right after Linus Torvalds or right before, I don't remember. Uh, well, that was intimidating. <laughs> and, and precisely the, 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 the question I was, was asked to which once were in the, in the keynote or tried to ask was, how did we manage with like, um, I think at the time was like six or eight people uh, end up like being in the top 10, top 15 contributors to, to the next channel. So, um, I think the root values of free electrons and bootlin really help here. This focus of doing open source and, and upstream uh, has been driving uh, the, the contracts that we had chosen. Um, that was an important thing um, because, yeah, if you take just what comes um, uh, because it, I don't know, brings more money or I don't know, something like that for us, 
the amount of contribution you can extract from a project has been, and when I say extract, it sounds maybe a bit uh, negative, but it's not at all. The more contributions you can do based on the project is what has been the, the driving factor to, to decide which project we would take from the different customers we, we had. So that's one, one first key to, 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 uh, to that. And also to uh, make it, to be really committed to doing those contributions. Uh, mm-hmm. So in some projects, it was really the goal. Like we had contracts with Silicon vendors where the goal was really to have the code upstream. So these are obviously the best projects because you're really paid to, to do that work that you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have other uh, more regular uh, board support package projects where the customer wants a kernel that runs on his hardware and whether it goes upstream or not is yeah, maybe good, but it's, it's not such a big deal if, if mm-hmm. it remains a, a stack of patches. But it's really on our side that we say, no, no, this is something we want to, to push upstream um, because we believe this is the right thing to do because we like to do it and because we also think it's the, uh, the, the third way of uh, getting more business uh, yeah. next to the open training materials and, and doing giving talks is showing that you contribute, show your expertise uh, so that the, the, the business card that we have is you go to git.kane.org, you search for brooklyn.com contributions and here you see what we're capable of doing. We don't have to spend like hours convincing that we have the right expertise the expertise is just here, right in front of your eyes. See the patches, see the drivers we've written, see the complexity of the code that we've worked on, and just judge by yourself. Um, so it's been, uh, yeah, important for, for, for us. And then the, the um, next, so those are more related to like the, the, the philosophy and the core values, which Michael had at the beginning, which I was fully sharing, um, of course. Um, and, and Michael has always been like, yeah, yeah, if we need to spend two more days on doing that, pushing it upstream, we're going to spend those two more days from business point of view uh, in the short term, it doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. But in the more like long term of things, um, it, it, it does make sense to, to do that even for us in terms of, of uh, image, reputation, and, and so on. And the mm-hmm. second aspect is just the people, right? Yeah. If you have the right people in your team, none of what we have done would have been possible without the engineers who really like what they what they are doing they like sending patches they like this exactly what we've seen before like this rewarding feeling of sending patches getting like top level maintainers giving them feedback seeing Mm -hmm. that that feedback improve over time as they progress through uh, in their expertise in terms of annual contribution Um, all this is yeah it, it was really really important so indeed uh, we could do that also because, yeah, we're just like six, seven, eight engineers, but all of us were people who really believed in open source and we still do and and um, and wanted things to go upstream and were really motivated by that. There are sometimes engineers who like, they're like, they like to solve technical problems and complex ones, but the aspect of sharing and getting the code upstream, cleaning up is, is not something they really like and it's, I mean, it's okay. Everybody can have different tastes and, and so on. But at, at Brooklyn, we have always tried to have a, a good balance uh, between um, yeah, people who like the technical aspects, but also who, who like this, um, the social aspect that, that is implied by uh, participating to a community. Uh, we like this rewarding uh, aspect of the, um, 
of seeing its contributions, going to the official Linux kernel, uh, then giving a talk about these contributions and, and, and things like that. So really, right. both the management point of view and, and the, the, the engineer's point of view has been important. And then the third aspect is, of course, the customers, right? Because we've been able to find the right customers, wanted to do the right thing at the right time, mm -hmm. uh, has been really key uh, in, into uh, pushing us uh, in, in, that, uh, in that direction. Nice, nice. Yeah, so I think um, um, something that, you know, this is uh, many times you go through your career and different experiences and, and you find that, you know, you build your opinions or informed opinion that is not quite, you know, with the rest of the team, but, you know, in general, it is more an unpopular opinion, right? So anything that, you know, you would um, advise people not to do. Not to do well. Yeah, I, I remember that was on the list of uh, topics. So I, I don't know if I have a lot of unpopular opinions. Perhaps the one thing that I find weird is um, on at the technical level is how many people get into embedded Linux through the um, through the Raspberry Pi ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's great. I mean, Raspberry Pi has done tons of excellent things as as. Uh, dropped the, the 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 cost of things and has dropped the the um, entry barrier to 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 embedded a lot and has allowed makers and, and universities to do tons of things so it's lots of things are great in, in raspberry pi uh, but also um, they've also decided to do those great things uh, a little bit and well more than a little bit outside of the the standard path that that the, the open source community has been has been uh, designing that by remaining like a, a vendor specific thing on their side by having no proper bootloader by having yeah. like so those Graphics people who then end up learning embedded linux through raspberry pi they don't learn that much embedded linux in the end they learn like the raspberry pi ecosystem and then when they switch to everything else they, they find it awkward but really it's the other way around right it's, mm -hmm. it's every other yeah. platform as a U-boot, as an upstream kernel, as and then it's 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 pretty much the same, uh, and sometimes it's less different when you switch from I don't know an ARM platform to a MIP platform than when you switch to an ARM platform to the Raspberry Pi, right? <laughs> because um, so maybe I don't know maybe it's an unpopular opinion, but I would have liked them to be more uh, standard standard in in how they, they support their uh, their platform. Mm. I think. It's a pass they're taking, right? By having yeah. uh, uh, more support in the upstream channel, by having uh, support in upstream Mesa 3D for the OpenGL acceleration, and lots of different things. So it is coming, but I believe it's been a bit a bit long mm -hmm. uh, to come. Um, it's, but it's made, it's also maybe difficult for people doing marketing. People want to do marketing; they want to show uh, differentiators. Yeah. But at our level of the stack differentiation is annoying. What you want is boring. It's like <laughs> standardization, follow the same APIs, the same, yeah. you know, um, uh, I'm sure um, you've been working on networking equipment and networking is another field where every company is inventing its own stack to manage and all switches and, and whatnot. And yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a nightmare for people buying those, those chips to fill with all those custom SDKs and, and things. Yep. Uh, 
but mm -hmm. selling the fact that, yeah, but there are standard APIs in Linux to do that. And if they are not like complete enough, we can also extend them, but at least it's going to be the same foundation for everybody to, to use. Yeah, but then what is our differentiation? Well, <laughs> your differentiation is that you're not different, so you're good. <laughs> so yeah, that may be unpopular opinion. I don't know if that yeah. uh, finds us. That's, that's a good that's, one. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Good. So I think um, um, we basically any any like you know final bit of advice that you know you would offer to uh, from your experiences or any uh, books or any podcast or blogs that you read and uh, you know that are useful for uh, folks you know uh, any movies uh, your hobbies you know that you find interesting anything um, I think my word of advice kind of reflects back to the very beginning of our discussion. Mm -hmm. Find a goal and stay focused. Find something that you want to, to learn. In my case, it was writing an operating system. It was completely useless, but that didn't matter. All right? mm -hmm. It was a, a learning experience, but I, by sticking to it, that's what allowed me to, to grow. And it's a little bit the same today. Um, find a piece of hardware that doesn't have support or that doesn't have support in upstream Linux um, and develop the support for it or clean it up, push it upstream. Yeah, find the goal. I've, I see so many people wanting to learn like kernel development, but not knowing what to do. And, and on the other end, I can see from my embedded experience, uh, the amount of work that needs to be done in terms of hardware support, which is really massive. Mm. Um, so find, find something um, that makes and just don't learn like kernel development for the sake of learning kernel development. Learn it to solve a specific problem that is that is affecting you, and and that is something you can find by if you're interested in embedded. Of course, is uh, buying some embedded boards, uh, testing things, trying things out, and then finding something that is missing or that could be better, and 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 push that, um, and 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 stay focused on that. I think that's the the word of of advice I would have. Thanks, Thomas. So the final words, really interesting. Um, you know, find something that solves the problem. And uh, thank you, Thomas, for uh, being with us today on this uh, podcast. I think it has a lot of uh, good information and experience that I think, you know, everybody will benefit from us. So Cliff, what's uh, your thoughts? Yes, likewise, it's been a pleasure to, to listen and, and learn. And we definitely a lot to process here. So we appreciate your time. Well, Thank thanks you. a lot for having me as a guest and hope to see you in the future in real life. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.